But he would get frustrated over stuff like, you know, that you know, I wouldn't even pay attention to, but it would, for whatever reason, get under his skin. So one day, he was in there, he goes, he got a text like it was getting ready to snow from dispatch. And he goes, what? You know, you know, because the battalion chiefs would say that. Send up, hey, just send a text out to everybody. Welcome. We had our dive. I had, was a dive team member, so yeah. I had a dive team pager. Not everybody had them. But he, they would text would come in going, hey, be advised. All personnel be advised. You know, it's, it's snowing. The roads are a little slippery or something like that. And he's looking at it and he goes, that's the stupidest shit. You know, why do they send this? Like, we don't know the stupidest stuff like that. And I thought, you know, I just figured out that you could actually go on, log on to net page or whatever it was. And you could make your own text up if you knew the numbers you were sending to. And I knew Shelly's number. So, so, so I go on there and I start, like, be advised, all personnel, ECC, from the ECC, all personnel be advised. You know, the expected snowfall is going to be between two and four inches. Sent, you know, and I waited like 15 minutes. Update, ECC, the expected snowfall is going to be two and a quarter to three and three quarter inches. Sent, you know. And I did that to him like five times. And he came around the corner and he goes, what the hell is wrong with that? They keep giving me updates like every 15 minutes. So, like the last one I put in said, attention all personnel, please be advised due to safety concerns, please don't run with scissors. And sand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that's when he came around and goes, JP, do you have something to do with this? <laughs> you got that too? Welcome to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson. And uh, when I started this podcast uh, back in January of this year, after the first couple episodes went out, somebody reached out to me and said, hey, uh, you need to do an episode on practical jokes and pranks. And at the time, I was like, yeah, that would be fun and interesting. It might be a little bit dangerous uh, because some of the ones that uh, I'm familiar with may have faded from memory, and I don't want to give anybody ideas. So as a formal disclaimer... Don't try this at home. Uh, but one of the things that popped into my mind uh, as soon as they talked about that was, uh, you know, some of the history and some of the, some of the pranks that went on. And uh, somebody that I went to recruit school with who was not involved, as far as he would admit, in any practical jokes, but seems to have been witness to many and a fantastic uh, critiquer of a few, uh, retired Lieutenant John Paul Jones, JP. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming out. My pleasure, my pleasure. Glad to be here. And uh, like I said, you were you never. I don't, well, I think you might have admitted to a couple since retirement because uh, the statute of limitations is over. But uh, that's kind of what we want to talk about. I've got some clips from people from uh, the episode so far. Maybe play a few of those. And then uh, with your uh, vast ex- experience of watching these jokes, uh, maybe we'll share a few there too. Sounds like a plan. Well, let's start uh, start at the beginning. How did you get in the fire department? You and I came in the same recruit school uh, back in 1983. How did you get started? Um, that, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of guys that, you know, joined the Chesterfield Fire Department. And, yeah, you know, I know they had put in applications many places. So I consider myself very lucky in the fact that it was not really an intentional plan. You know, I always respected firefighters and, and whatnot. But my goal was to be an engineer, and I had set a course to go to Virginia Tech in engineering. Um, my first year there, I did not apply myself efficiently, uh, so I had to take some time off, and the plan was to go to VCU, knock out the first two years, and then go back and finish my degree in engineering. And because I was back home, I started working for Hertz Corporation. Um, 
and as a shuttler. So you would just, and what that involved is you would just go pick cars up at airports and bring them back to the lot. So at various airports like Norfolk or whatnot. Um, and I ran into all these older guys um, that would come and go. Because the nice thing about shuttler in that position is you didn't have to work if you didn't want to. So it was super flexible for the guys that were doing it. And it turns out there were a bunch of Richmond firefighters that were working on their days off. And because we were in a car riding to Norfolk together, they would talk to me a little bit about it, and they started telling me about their job. And then they mentioned that this little podunk county next to Richmond called Chesterfield podunk. was Back hiring the all the time because, you know, a lot of the, the volunteer stations that were all volunteer were requesting assistance, and I should put in an application and see how it goes. And that was really it. I, you know, I, I talked to that. One of my good friends back then was a guy named Scott Heckler. Um, and he and I hung out together. He was my best man and, you know, my wedding. And he and I got together and put our applications in, and he got hired in drill school 13, and I got hired in drill school 14 off that same hiring list. Um, and probably it might still be one of the smallest drill schools that they've had. It was only the five of us. It, it was the hardest and it was the best because uh, we did work of 30 people with the five of us. And, uh, absolutely. Maybe one day, uh, I know uh, we've lost one of our members, George Decker, rest his soul, one of the one of the greatest, kind-heartedest guys you'll ever meet. And I've got a clip about him in this episode, and hopefully we'll get to it. And uh, um, I don't know where Mike Woolley wound up. I think he wound up being a, a substance abuse counselor out west or something. Right, maybe. yeah. I, I actually saw him on LinkedIn and sent him something, you know, Letting him know that we were still thinking about him, and they, yeah, he he went back and oh, he may have already had a degree in psychology or something like that. But yeah, he's doing something along those lines. Yeah, recruit school fourteen was postgraduate work, I think. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But now, now Kevin uh, Kevin McNamee is also retired from the Air Force, so maybe we'll, you and Hein, you and you and him and I will get together one day and we'll reminisce about four wheeling and going to Pizza Huts and oh, Mike yeah. Woolley walking on his hands and things like yeah, that. Yeah, just. A- <laughs> Make a point. That's right. We'll just leave it at that. That's right. <laughs> uh, but we'll leave that behind and talk a little bit more about your career. You uh, you ultimately wound up getting promoted to lieutenant and became a paramedic. Um, where, where What stations did you work in? Where did you go from there? I started out at station number nine. That was my first assignment. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, they had some issues with the, the building at nine, and they didn't accept The county wouldn't accept it, but I was hired to be there. So I ended up. Like the first six months I was in the fire department, I was just a designated floater. So the the bad thing is I didn't really have a permanent home. You know, I lived out of a couple trash bags like everybody else does that works overtime. But the cool thing is I got to work everywhere in the county. But eventually they settled in at Station 9. Um, I stayed there almost my entire career as a firefighter until I got on the promotional list. And then a quick skip through 7 and 10, um, just filling vacancies for those guys because Back in those days, when you were on a promotional list and you were number three or four or five, odds are when that third, fourth, or fifth position came open, you got it. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't a, another route to, uh, you know, selection after you got your name fixed on that site. So I knew I was getting promoted, um, and I knew I was also going to go work for at that time. He was Captain Paul Margaret at that time, but getting ready, he was getting ready to be promoted to battalion chief, and so he took me down to Ettrick. Um, I stayed down there for a couple of years and complained my way out of it, saying that, you know, I, I showed him that I'd gone through like a three-month period where I'd only run like four fire calls total, like one car wreck, you know, a brush fire. And I told him I wanted more experience, and that's when he brought me up to the big house where I worked with you and Mark Berry and Jeff Cox. And that probably was the funnest assignment I have ever had, um, not just personnel-wise, but just because back then 
there wasn't a Panera Bread on Jeff Davis Turnpike or a Target <laughs> or anything else. It was it was a lot lot rougher area, but made for more fun calls. Um, and so I stayed at 14 for a while. Did a quick stint through day work, which I talk a little bit about practical jokes. If you're ever gonna pull practical jokes on the guys that work for you, remember you might work for them later. <laughs> so, uh, so I worked for you a little bit you're in the welcome. fire marshal's office and. Basically, hit a couple other stations on the way out. Um, you know, finally ended up going through four, and then station 16 was my final assignment. Uh, I got to do some other cool stuff. I was on the tech rescue team when it was initiated, so I was one of the founding members of that, and spent, uh, I think, seven or eight years on the dive team. Um, so I got to do a little bit of the extra stuff, too, and paramedic as well. So that was, that was, those were all good times. I enjoyed all of it. You know, some certainly some days that were a little sketchy, but as a as a general rule of thumb, it was fun. Yeah, we uh, Mark Berry and Jerry Pruden were on this. Uh, we talked about the Dutch Gap uh, rescue. Uh, I think it was like episode three or four somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the stories Mark and I got to talking about was um, Mark and I were in the jump seat of one forty three going to a medical call at Greenlee. Or no, we were going to it was at Roadrunner Trailer Park. That was where the medical call was, and we were all ALS at the time. We get to the Roadrunner, and you can see a trailer in Greenlee burning from the from Route One. And all you say is, "One of you guys get out and wait for the ambulance." And both of us by that time had turnout gear on, and all you could hear was "ring, ring." And we said, "You get out." <laughs> yeah, I do recall that. Yep. And uh, I think at that point, Bensley pulled up, and they had ALS, and off yeah. we went to the fire call. Right. Yeah, we saw. Yeah, I think we saw. We were spotted to pull up, and John. I think it was John, John King, King. It was in yeah. the front seat. It was like John King. They've got ALS. Let's go. And <laughs> we're out of here. And uh, the other call that sticks in my mind is uh, you had just gotten turned loose as ALS. And I think I'd gone up to, to the courthouse, taking the utility somewhere, driv- taking something back to logistics. And while I was there, they punched out a cardiac arrest on Jeff Davis, and you and Bensley went. And I said, well, I'll stop by and see if he needs any help. <laughs> I opened the back of that ambulance, and there's you with the face shield on, fogged up, and it looked like the ALS bag had exploded <laughs> in the back of this ambulance. And all you could say was, get up in here. <laughs> Yeah, man, I have to admit, man, I, I, you know, I've been in some pretty decent fires and stuff like that. But when I went through my whole time precepting as an ALS provider, I never ran a full arrest while I was precepting. <laughs> and then when I came out in the field, you know, every day I was like, you know, I've got this nice, warm, fuzzy safety blanket of Robbie Dawson riding in the jump seat. So when we finally do run a full arrest, I'll just make sure he makes sure I don't, you know, I don't do anything that would hurt, you know, make this thing go downhill. And for all the, if there are any younger listeners out here, Back in those days, it wasn't like you got off Engine 5 and got on Medic 7. You got off Engine 5 and got on with a crew of volunteer rescue squad folks that, you know, sometimes were really good, but it, the equipment sometimes was not, not familiar. So much. <laughs> yeah, sometimes not so good. But, you know, you were dealing with equipment you weren't familiar with, with people you may have never met. You know, you don't know who knows what. And every now and then you'd find out that somebody you assigned to do a job really wasn't qualified to do that job because they were observing and they didn't tell you that. <laughs> But, you know, so when you hopped in the back of an ambulance, especially if you've never run a full arrest as an ALS provider in your life and you're with a group of people you don't even know, it's a little <laughs> nerve-wracking. So, yeah, when I still remember those back doors opening up and it's like, you know, that, that sound you hear in the background and a big, you know, shining light behind something going, ah, it's like, get in here. Yeah, you, were, you yeah. looked if a bit you frazzled. Shut, yeah, if you had shut the doors and not gotten in there, I probably would have tried to get you fired when I got back to the station. But, yeah, it, it worked out fine. Oh, yeah. Good times. Yep. Good times. All right, well, let's uh, let's talk about some of the practical jokes and some of the some of the 
funny stuff that happened in the stations. Um, you mentioned you were at Station 9, and uh, one that popped into my mind when just thinking about this. And I, Again, I don't know if you were a participant or a witness, but uh, Station 9 had a, a second-floor bunk room, locker room, and the pole was on like a balcony in the bay. And you had two kind of barrier doors that keep the air conditioning in the living side of the quarters and this balcony that was in the in the apparatus bay and the two two doors, one to the bunk room and one to the hallway. You had to go out into this balcony, and that's where you got on a pole hole. And uh, somebody locked Terry Newcomb out on that balcony one day, and I don't think he was wearing a stitch of clothes. <laughs> remember that? Do you remember I, that? I might have heard about that. Uh, you know, I asked Terry about that later. I, I don't know how it happened to him. <laughs> But I will say that for for safety reasons, they uh, they they knew we would give station tours, so they put these two just thumb locks on the top of the doors, about four feet up, five feet up, so little kids when they came through wouldn't be able to wander out in a pole hole and fall through it and land in the bay. Um, and you know, if you ever been in a fire station, different, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night and realize you have to go to the restroom. You usually go do it because if you don't, you'll pay for it. And that just so happened. One time I was coming back and laying down in the uh, the bunk room, and I noticed that every time Terry Duper would go to the bathroom, he would always go through the pole hole. And I couldn't figure out why, and it turns out it's because he's a really nice guy, because on the outside of that bunk room door, there was a permanently on fluorescent light, and if you opened it up, it would shine light into the bunk room. So he's actually being nice to the guys in there, which turned out to be a fatal flaw in this case, <laughs> because it also left him for an opportunity to... Uh, you know, come back through that same way. So after he left, if you locked the bunk room door or the pole hole door to the bunk room and then waited at the door to the hallway until you heard the other one close, you could run around the corner and lock that one too. <laughs> so then you hear, then you just waited to hear, then you unlock both of them and then run back to bed real quick and then wonder what, you know, what happened to you last night? Where'd you go? At least that's what I heard happen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think he tells the story. He heard he heard the second door click locked and went, "Oh, damn it!" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think man. Yeah, it's, it's something like that. That was a long time ago. So. Oh yeah. Um, but some of these recordings I've got. I mean, the um, uh, Gene Gerald or Cricket was on. Um, I think it was episode uh, twelve or so. And, and he's been around the fire service for well over 40 years now, and some of the stuff that he talked about you can't do anymore, and this is probably one of them. And uh, I'm going to play this clip and uh, just see what you think about that on the backside. Well, um, we come up with the idea one day that we had these cigarette loads, which is, if you remember our old cap pistol, if you remember those, um, uh, these cigarette loads were kind of like the old cap pistol stuff. had about the same grams of powder in them. Uh, but you stick them up in the end of a cigarette, and when, of course, you'd light the cigarette, as it burnt down and hit that load, it would go off like a cap gun, and, of course, it would blow the cigarette all to pieces. So we, uh, we, we, we stuck about four of those and randomly threw his pack of cigarettes while he was out there checking the truck, and he'd smoke a cigarette. He'd come in to eat breakfast and light up a cigarette, and we all... <laughs> <laughs> he'd smoke it there, nothing happened. They were all worried it was going to go off in front of him. He'd get up and go do something. <clears throat> we're out there cleaning the house. And, and all of a sudden you hear, bam! You know, they blow up, and tobacco everywhere. Yeah. And, and this went on. Oh, man, it was funny because we were just scared. Every time he'd sit down and smoke a cigarette, we were scared that blow up on us. Yeah. So we had him convinced that what was wrong with it was that it was a 
something wrong at Philip Morris to where it wasn't <laughs> screening the tobacco <laughs> enough to where it was letting the tobacco seeds get in his cigarette and the tobacco seeds were exploding. <laughs> so up to the point where he's calling Philip Morris trying to get a hold to the quality control department and tell him and finally got a hold of somebody down there uh, and told him his story about his cigarettes exploding with the tobacco seed. Well, you can imagine how that conversation went on the other end of the phone like that. It was <laughs> Those are some of the great ones that kind of go beyond what they were intended to do, you know. <laughs> yeah, I can I can imagine. Like it would be it would be anxiety inducing if you knew it was going to happen. It might happen every time he lights one up. Like I wonder if you know what if this is that one of them. <laughs> Lean back a little. Oh, yeah, those that's funny. Those uh, ones that get outside the department were pretty hilarious. So, uh, I think we got might even have a couple more in here. So, uh, so what's uh, what's what are some of those old school pranks that you might have seen happen that you probably aren't going to see anymore just because of the difference in the departments these days? Um, I'm trying to think of which uh, which one. I tried to keep most of mine tame, but I can I can point out. I tried to think of the earliest. I would say prank that I was involved with, but I have to admit this leans a little towards being vindictive. <laughs> so, so I, and and I want to put a qualifier here. I was in my early twenties, and I'd only been in the state. I'd only been in an apartment maybe a couple years. Um, so, being in your early twenties, sometimes you don't think things through. So, when you decide you're going to go ahead and pull a prank on somebody, why not pick the battalion chief that sleeps in your station? <laughs> so, we had a battalion chief. I won't name names on this one because the battalion chief. Like he had a reputation for being kind of hard on his the supervisors that he was in control of, and those included guys like Frank Marseille and Danny Jenkins and Perry Taylor. So these guys were well respected, but they they caught a rough time from him every now and then. And one one evening he came into the station. The battalion chief came back like eight thirty at night, and I guess he had had a bad day, and called my supervisor in, who I'll also leave nameless on this one, into the office and. You know, quarter to nine, our supervisor comes back out of the office, calls us all down to the watch desk, and goes, "You need to get on. The, you need to go get the ladder out of the storage. This like twenty-four foot wooden rickety <laughs> wooden rickety step ladder, and clean all the cobwebs out of the bar joists in the bay." It was like, "Well, can't we get it next workday?" No, <laughs> but I've been told we're going to do it tonight. So, you know, it's like, oh, man, what's this all? You know, so we go out, you know, but I was young. So who cares? You know, we'll just do it. So I'm standing on this wooden step ladder, you know, grumbling to myself with two mop handles taped together and a rag taped on the end of it, cleaning cobwebs out of the bay at 9 o'clock at night because that's what we were ordered to do. <laughs> that's what the bosses said. Yeah, so, you know, that's, you know, what you're ordered to do it. I mean, back then and even now, pretty much, if that's what you're ordered to do, you do. Well, as fate would have it, like the next day or the day after, before shift change, I come out and this same battalion chief is grumbling at the desk like, God, I didn't get a lick of sleep last night. Stupid damn crickets are in my room <laughs> chirping all night long. And that was the that was a sign from above that I had a mission. So because I was also the rookie there, that was kind of my job at night. You know, we had to make sure we weren't wasting electricity. So you'd go around the station and turn all the lights off. And at that time, nine was in the middle of a field. There was no food line or anything around it. So there was lots of bugs. Like crickets. Yeah, like crickets. <laughs> so every night for probably the next month, when I would go around the station, turn the lights off, I'd do a lap of the bay and see if I could catch any crickets, <laughs> which usually I could. And by that time, the battalion chief was asleep. So I would just go around the watch desk and, 
now I think it's an office. It's maybe the captain's office or something, but I used to, well, there's still a bunk room yeah. there. I would just drop the cricket in front of the bunk room and tap my foot behind it, and it would scurry underneath that little crack into his <laughs> bunk room. So... I don't know. I don't. I don't recall him actually coming out complaining about it even more. Maybe he had some other officer call a exterminator. But you know, I felt warm and fuzzy every time I did that. <laughs> so, just because it seemed like it was the right thing to do at the time. <laughs> Although now, for all the new guys there, I don't suggest if you're going to start pranks, you pick the battalion chief when you're only in the department like two years. <laughs> well, at least you're off probation. So. Yeah, that's right. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I didn't. I hadn't heard that one. That was a. Uh, that was a little different one. Yeah. You ever remember the Trading Post? It was kind of that newspaper. Yes. That, uh, yes. People would, you know, now it's uh, Facebook Marketplace or right. uh, Nextdoor or something like that. Yeah. But it used to be this uh, newspaper like thing that would come out. And a lot of people would had pagers back in the day. And uh, so that kind of sets this one up from uh, from John Harkness, uh, a couple pranks that happened in the city. One of the best, but it's going to date, is back when we had the Trading Post. And this is before cell phones, so every we had beepers. And uh, people would list stuff for sale. And um, what the guys did one evening is they would put Station 11's phone number like they were interested in, a, in an item that was for sale. <clears throat> and they did this for probably a couple hours. So, I mean, there were literally hundreds and hundreds of phone calls going to number 11 and you can imagine they were starting to you know like what's going on and then you know some of these people were irate and of course since these guys were doing it they would call over and say hey what are you what are you screwing with before and uh they didn't know what hit them it uh, it was classic and then <laughs> Hey, you're calling about the uh, the pickup truck for sale? No. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you calling about the refrigerator? No. <laughs> that's hours. actually a really good. Uh, that's a really good setup. Yeah. I imagine you could still do that on Facebook Marketplace. Well, you now. never know. Well, cell phones and text messages probably take the place of it now. But uh, yeah, we'll see. You got any of that? Uh, somebody got you. You scared somebody? You just frightened the crap out of them? Oh yeah. You might. You might be familiar with this. Um, yeah. There was. There was a. A guy that was a firefighter that worked for me, and I still remember, man. I, I'll start off by like almost all the practical jokes usually have some kind of backstory, like some setup, and it, it's usually everything that. And I'll admit to being involved in a lot of these, obviously. You know, was, I, you know, there were a couple rules I always had for the practical jokes. It's one they they couldn't be hurtful, like you couldn't really like hurt somebody's feelings or something like that. You couldn't mess with turnout gear. I had people go, let's let's switch the boots backwards on their bucket. Like, no, no, you don't mess me. <laughs> there there are lines. Yeah, you can't you can't do anything that would affect your operational effectiveness. But um, but almost every every practical joke usually had some like like I talked about with the cricket, some aha moment where I just saw an opportunity. Like this would probably be funny. And uh, I think if you you at that time probably were getting ready to maybe thinking about quitting Chesterfield uh, Fire. I going, know that I know that I know where this is going. Yeah, Chesterfield Fire Department and uh, taking a peek out the back bay door of Station 14, and I was standing there trying to figure out what was going on with you. And instead of being concerned for your well-being, I thought, <laughs> you know, the, the that the first clear pane of glass is like four foot high, so I could easily crawl across the bottom of that bay door and pop up in front of Robbie and scare him. So, uh, you know, I decided that uh, I would give that a shot. And darned if you didn't turn around and walk away. So 
because I had an accomplice at that time. I ran over and got Mark Perry. I said, man, I just had a golden opportunity, and Robbie ruined it. And I said, it, I said I was going to hop up in front of him and scare him. And I said, he was leaning on the window looking out at the cemetery for some reason. And right, Mark goes, don't worry, I'll get him back over there. <laughs> so, he knew exactly where you were going with it. Yeah, huh? yeah. Yeah, right, so so he now goes, I'm learning the rest of the story here. Yeah, so he goes back over there, and you know, lean, you lean on the door, and he leans on the door. And I'd already told Mark, I said, man, I'm gonna, you'll see me go out the side door. I said, give me about four or five minutes and if Robbie's looking forward just tap the door with your foot and I counted like all right he's like three panes over on the second bay door in the middle you know so yeah so I go out the side door I come over three panes over and get as close to the door as I possibly could just wait and then here and I hopped up and blah I couldn't have been I mean you guys have to realize man Robbie was leaning on the windowsill probably his nose about an inch from the the glass, and I hopped up probably about an inch from the other side of the glass, right in front of him. It was and nice it, and quiet, very, very reflective, yeah. and Mark and I are having a serious conversation. Yeah. And Yeah, and Robbie could figure uh, in on what happened from that point over, because I kind of came in when all the laughter was going on, and Mark was hurling, you know, what turned out to be the catchphrase of this whole joke. But Yeah, it's, uh, I screamed a little bit. <laughs> I, I squealed. Yeah. And, uh... Turned out to be, yeah, you squeal like a girl. Yeah. And ultimately, I decided to leave Chesterfield and go to Hanover, and uh, my shift mates gave me a, a going-away present. Yeah. So this was, now, this is way before Photoshop. Yeah. And this is, this is something that uh, I was going to say, for once again, some of the younger viewers, you have to remember, man, there weren't computers in the stations, and most people didn't have them in their house, and nobody had them in their pocket. You know, this was, this was a long time ago. So I came around the corner, and Mark's laughing. He's like, ah. Oh, Robbie's a girly man who squeals when you scare him. And I thought, that's a really good catchphrase. So at that, once again, you know, technology wasn't what it is now. You couldn't just go Photoshop yourself. But I happened like a week later to go through the Chesterfield Town Center, and they had this kiosk where you could laminate pictures of whatever you wanted onto, you know, a shirt or, in this case, a coffee cup. So I went and literally cut and pasted. I had to find a photo, one that was on paper, and cut a picture of Robbie's head out of that photo and then got a, it was a Sears catalog, believe it or not, and found the lingerie section and pasted the head onto that and glued it onto a card. And probably the funniest part of this, I don't, I don't know if you've ever heard this part. Then I had to go to the mall in the middle of the kiosk, in the middle of the mall. Uh, you know, and malls back then were kind of busy because Amazon didn't exist either. So I give it to the lady and she's looking at it. She scans it in and it goes on this big screen sitting, <laughs> sitting in the middle of the mall. And you could hear people walking by going, Oh my God, there's this dude's head with a mustache and everything else on this lady's body wearing white lingerie. Uh, and, but sure enough, she put that on one side of the cup, like, you know, girly man underneath it. And a big sign that said eek above his head written in a bubble with pencil. And, you know, <laughs> And then the backside was a girly man. He squeals when you scare him or something like that. I think it was on that. Yep. And that was my going away present. Yeah. That seemed like a boomerang a couple of times. Yeah, I can, I can explain both of those. <laughs> <laughs> so about a week before Robbie was to leave the station, I thought, I know he's going to throw that cup away. So he was probably in the back of a Bensley unit somewhere. So I went rooting through his locker. And sure enough, it was in the back corner of his locker. So I took it and put it in my locker and hit it. Um, and I don't know if it was Fred Crosby's brother, John, or somebody had a connection over in Hanover. So we packaged the cup up and sent it on its way so that it would be awaiting you when you arrived at Hanover. 
And I yeah, guess it was, it was a, a couple of months later, and uh, Mike Harmon was a fire chief, and our office was upstairs in this old farmhouse, and huh. his office was on the first floor. And came in one morning, and he was at his desk, and hey, come in here for a second. Let me ask you something. Sure, chief, what's up? And he's sitting there drinking coffee out of that damn room. <laughs> Yeah. So yep, that was a that was a long story. Well, well, I've got phase three. Yeah, I'll oh, go ahead. Go ahead. There's phase three of that. <laughs> it so, reappeared again. Yeah. So when you returned to Chesterfield Fire Department, it just so happened that I happened to have that same <laughs> picture in a file because I never threw anything away. So uh, back to the mall I went, had a brand new cup created, and I gave that one to uh, Chief Rick Butcher. And I guess you can yeah, fill in man. how the HR lady got terrified at that point. <laughs> So I came back to Chesterfield. I had to go. I came back on a temporary basis working the station and still had to go through the hiring process, take the test, take the physical, do the interview. I go into the interview, and um, it's Rick Butcher and Gene Reams and Mary Willis was the interview panel, and Mary was the HR director. And Rick Butcher was the chair, and they were all asking the, the traditional, you know, HR, want to get hired questions, and you know, I'm answering them and went through everything fine. And at the end of it, he goes, well, do you have any questions of us? I said, no, sir, I think I'm, I'm good to go. And he takes that coffee mug he had and turns it 180 degrees so it's facing me. And there's that picture of the girly man on his coffee mug in my uh, interview for the return to the fire department. I said, yes, sir, I do have one question. What's that? He said, do you have any extra captains in the station and officers in the station? Because I'm getting ready to go whip two of them's ass right now <laughs> both you and mark berry were both working that day and all i could think of is i'm gonna go to number three and i think seven or wherever you were working and just pummel you guys and, uh, and i could see mary willis's eyes get big yeah. she didn't know the story she didn't know any of the history yeah. and she just knew she, she, i was gonna sue the county for that but then i was like yeah i must i must be okay now that uh, butcher's harassing me in the interview process so. yeah now you mentioned that when you talked about stuff that wouldn't be allowed nowadays i'm sure putting a picture of anybody in lingerie at <laughs> yeah. an interview in front of an HR person would probably cause them to code yeah. right there in front yeah, of you. Yeah, that right would have been a little touchy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about scaring people. The um, There's one in here. Let's see if I find which one it was. I, I think I, I labeled this one uh, Ghost Stories. This is uh, Russ Chandler, and Russ worked in city of Petersburg for a while, and uh, – it's a little story about uh, something that happened in Petersburg. The most legendary um, was definitely a station two in Petersburg. Uh, two things that happened. The first thing, and I'd only been there about a week. <laughs> and the first thing that happened is out in where we uh, refilled the air bottles, they found an old World War II helmet. And it had no liner in it. So it's just the steel casing. When you put it on, it goes all the way to your shoulders. And they found an old trench coat. Well, we had this one guy that just was certain Station 2 was haunted. And every day, we didn't have dispatchers. We had a person set on the radio at Station 2. You all had to take your turn. And this one guy that was scared to death of ghosts, he was sitting in there. And we had all uh, gone out to the front away from a station, so it was real quiet. And uh, about that time, Captain Brockwell put that helmet on, put the trench coat on, and he just sort of slowly sunk down. So the bottom of the trench coat was scraping the floor. Oh. The helmet was all the way down his shoulders, and he walked past the hallway where the opening was for the, for the <laughs> dispatch room. <laughs> the dispatch room. <laughs> when he did that, all we heard was a loud scream and a clunk. <laughs> and the poor guy that was on dispatching, not only did he scream, he leaned back in his chair and knocked himself out cold. Oh, no. So he, to that, we were never able to convince him, never convince him that was Captain Brockwell. Well, 
Yeah, that's uh, when somebody gets hurt. Yeah, yeah, but that's hilarious. That's right. There, there was another one he he has in here. Um, uh, kind of the same characters that the Captain Brockwell. I'll play that one real quick too. And this is another hilarious one. Sure. Too. And and then the other thing that happened. It was to the same guy. He was absolutely certain that there were aliens. A repeat offender he on the victim side. Aliens. He talked about it all the time. And so Brockwell, we, it was something new that came out. Remember those? Well, we have them now. You break the, the, the tubes that glow in the dark. Uh, Brockwell found if he broke it and then cut it open, he smeared that green <laughs> on his face. The glow in the dark. Glow in the dark. Yeah. I'm and sensing a, a consistent name here. Yes, you okay, can. I'm just uh, checking. It was, oh, my God, yes. <laughs> But uh, then what he had done before that, he rigged a wire from Brown and Williamson uh, that went all the way down to just below the window in the radio room. And uh, this one guy was still on, he was on dispatch. And they two, uh, tied a, about four or five of those glow sticks together. And they took it up, a group of them right there, Brown and Williamson. And they, it, it couldn't have been better. They, it was the first time they tried it. And when they let it loose on that thing, wired to the wire, it slowly just started coming down that. And one of the guys stood outside, and he says, oh, my God, what's that? And about that time, the poor guy, he had the dispatcher. He turned around and started to look out that window. He saw the glow come down. He said some words that I can't repeat. And about that time, Brockwell had smeared that stuff on his face, popped up in front of that window. <laughs> Once again, the scream, clunk, out cold. Oh, <laughs> uh, Yeah. What's the what is this meme that's out there? There's nothing good that can come from a bunch of bored bored firefighters. Yeah, and, no doubt, no doubt. So, uh, what are, what other good ones you got? Um, actually, this is this once again goes along the same line of the uh, be nice to the guys that work for you because you might work for them at some <laughs> point. I was what, during my that quick trip through station seven and ten. I got. I was at station ten, and one day I opened up my locker, and somebody had hooked those little string poppers where you pull. You know, you pull the string, and it makes a popping noise. Shoots confetti out. Yeah, and so. it, 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 it just was. It just popped. It didn't do anything. So, you know, and other than I guess supposedly scary, I opened it up, and it popped in my locker. I was in the locker room by myself at ten, so I didn't see anybody laughing because usually. If you you know, something happens to you and it doesn't make any sense, you should start looking around and see who's laughing because you know, then you probably have an idea of what's going on. But nobody was in there, so I was like, well, you know, the other way to find out who does it, who did it, excuse me, is uh, don't say a word and see who asks you about it. You know, so I didn't say a word. You know, later on that afternoon, I was getting ready to do laundry at Station 10. Because I'm a nice guy and somebody's laundry was in front of me, I decided not to... Uh, not to jump them and, you know, put their stuff in first. And when I pulled the laundry out, there was something in one of the pockets. I pulled it out. It was a box of those things. <laughs> so I immediately started going through the T-shirts and figured out who's, whose clothes are these. <laughs> and it turns out it was Chris Bastikas, a huh? firefighter at the time. I was like, aha. I think now, the investigator skills would call that yeah, evidence. Yeah, so I ended up putting it back in his pocket. I put his clothes back in there, took my clothes back in the locker room so he didn't know I found it. You know, so you got to cover your tracks. <laughs> And immediately, uh, this got to be a prank that went around the county, and you could ask Hoo-Hoo about it. I started crafting the right angle for a mousetrap to launch flour out of. <laughs> um, and then I did everything from using flour to baby powder to putting rice at the bottom to give it more propulsion. But then I figured <laughs> shooting somebody in the face full of rice might actually injure them, so we got rid of that. But it turned out to be flour was just as good or baby powder. And rigged that thing up inside Chris's locker so that when he opened the door far enough, 
it would shoot it up to about a 90 degree angle and another string would stop it and inject all the flour out it. whoever happened to be standing in the doorway. And I told everybody on the shift, I said, hey man, because I, I think I was, uh, Bastigas might have been working over. I said, don't touch Bastigas' locker. Whatever you do, don't touch it because it's rigged. If you open it up, you're going to get flour all over you. And this, once again, for the, old, for the younger guys, back then on Sundays, you had something called Sunday routine. And in order to go to Sunday routine, you had to change the color shirt you wore. You went from a dark, collared shirt dark blue to a light blue collared shirt and once again a newer firefighter that just got hired named mark barry uh got assigned there and forgot his powder blue shirt but the guys on the shift knew that he got assigned there because bastiques had called in sick so when he got to like one o'clock in the afternoon and he said everybody switched to powder blues he goes man i don't have one and of course the guys on his shift were really nice to him they said Bastikas has got one. <laughs> There's his locker. So, yeah, and I had never met Mark at that time. I didn't know who he was. He, he actually told me the story later. So he goes, of course, he goes over there with only one clean shirt, opens up the locker and gets pile-driven by a big cup of flour, <laughs> which ruined his only clean shirt. So he ended up having to, like, wash that shirt, get Bastikas' other shirt. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's how the whole flower launcher campaign began. But, yeah, I found out like a year or two later when I met Mark Berry, and I said, hey, I'm J.P. Jones. He goes, you're the guy that got flour all over. I said, what do you mean I got flour all over you? You rigged Fast Deacons' locker, you know. And Oops. Yeah, and like I said, just for a point of reference here, by the way, I actually worked for Bass Deacons and Mark Berry as well later on in your career. So, you know, once again, if you're going to pull practical jokes. I'm, you know, I'm sensing a theme. If, uh, if JP's pulling pranks on you, you got a good chance to get promoted. Yeah, yeah. I mean? Apparently, it's a prerequisite. If you don't kill somebody and you know you let them away with it, then apparently you have the temperament to be a chief. <laughs> yeah, that's that, I didn't know. I didn't know about that one. But uh, there's one Mark Berry talks about, and that that, that flower in the mousetrap scenario uh, made its way to 14 when we were there. Uh, but I was far less skilled at setting this up as uh you'll hear in this little clip from mark so one day i had to run the uh carpet cleaner or the tile cleaner back up to the hardware store in chester so robbie was going to take that opportunity to rig that up in my locker uh he got the two mouse traps the little cups with the water and the flour but he, he didn't realize it wasn't going to take me very long to go up there so, <laughs> yeah. so i pull back into station he hears me get back in there so he starts rushing and i walk into the locker room and there's this cloud in there <laughs> And Robbie's accidentally set it off on himself. He's covered. He's got white flour all over him. He's covered. It's Water. Oh, yeah. I wasn't quite as proficient at that point in the, in the game. Yeah. Yep, that happened. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's uh, the, the setup of that and getting the door closed is pretty, uh, yeah, it's, it's like tricky. walking through a minefield. <laughs> it's tricky. It, it got me. Yeah, because when the, the first one went off, the, I think the water one went off first. And I went, damn it, and opened the other one and forgot the other one was already rigged, and it poof, came, came the flower at me. Yeah. Yeah, that's how that went down. Yeah. Oh, good times. Yeah, they were. Uh, there was another one that, um, uh, call it whatever you want, see, um, scaring people. Uh, Henry Rosenbaum, who's been on a couple times co-hosting, and uh, he was helping me out with uh, with one of them with the ladies in Henrico one day, and he, he tells this story about uh, somebody scaring him in the middle of the night. While Henry was sleeping, uh, they, they came, they busted into his bedroom with a chainsaw, uh, with no chain on it, and, and fired it up while he was asleep, and then put it, like, acted like they were going to 
cut him. I was an officer. They they laid it on my stomach <laughs> and revved it up, and I literally thought I was cut in half. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I did, and I screamed and screamed and screamed, and uh, and they didn't let up. They just kept holding it down and full throttle. But um, I, I'm sure I deserved it because there's probably something I did leading up to that. But uh, but they got me back. That yeah. was they got me back really well. Yep, that was a. Uh, and again, don't try this in yeah. the fire stations today. This is a. Uh, these are some fireable offenses in yeah. some cases today. We got away with a bunch back in the day. Yeah, yeah. The rules were. I don't know if they were looser, but yeah, they. Yeah, some of those things you just wouldn't. It wouldn't be good for you. Yeah, it wouldn't be good for you to try. Um. Do you ever pull any pranks on rookies when they came to came to work for you? Yeah, you got promoted, so you got to be an adult then, and you didn't really play any pranks after you became a lieutenant, right? Right, right. I think we talked a little bit earlier about Robbie leaving and then coming back to the <sighs> county. And there were some rules that apparently were brought, you know, told that he had a certain amount of time. And once again, there seems to be also seems to be a theme here with myself and Mark Barry teaming up against poor Robbie. But they, yeah, this was uh, this was right after I came off the helicopter. Yeah, yeah. That oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, and I think your firefighter one and two it expired or something. Yeah, like they that. were renewing it, or everybody had yeah. taken it like within six months, and I had to basically sit for both the tests. Right. Yeah. Right. So Go what? Go ahead. Yeah. What? What we came up with is, or what happened is, is that he had to take the test, and Mark Barry kept ragging Robbie about, you better study, you better train, you better study for this. And Robbie, you know, was pretty confident because Robbie's a sharp guy. He's like, ah, there's no way I'll flunk firefighter one and two, man. There's no way I'll flunk that. And then, you know, so later that afternoon, Mark Barry and I were talking to each other. It's like, you know, it'd be funny if we actually got some paperwork that said that. And so Mark goes, well, I know Captain Sacred in training <laughs> who, you know, obviously later was chief, but he says, I know Captain Saker in training. I'll call him and see if he'll send some bogus forms out. Well, Saker wrote the forms and signed them and then realized, you know what, these are an official fire training letterhead with my signature on the bottom, and I'm getting ready to send them to two firefighters at Station 14 or Firefighter <laughs> Lieutenant 14. I probably ought to let some other people in on this so I don't get in trouble. Because <laughs> we hadn't at that time included Chief Mauger, who was our battalion chief at the time, on this at all. So Mauger shows up and like, JP, can I see you in the office? And, you know, and he goes, you know, you want, you know, he shows me the paperwork. He's like, Oh, oh. I was like, this is, this could be trouble. And he goes, I'm in. What do we need to do? <laughs> so, I'm in. <laughs> so, so he actually, uh, for any of you guys that, uh, you know, been around chief Mauger, he's one of the nicest guys in the world, but man, if he acts like he's upset with you, he is convincing. Oh, I was. I so, felt about that big. Before. Yeah. So he. Oh, yeah. He told me. He said this afternoon after dinner, I'm going to call you down. He said, "Come on in. I'm going to tell you to shut the door," which was really not common at all with Margaret. He was almost <laughs> always open door policy. He said, "And we'll take it from there." So you know, I'm after dinner. We're all sitting at the kitchen table, and Margaret leaves early ahead of everybody, and then he comes back out in the hallway and looks down and he yells down, "JP, I need to see you in the office." And then it was like around the corner. He goes, "Make sure you shut the door." It was like, <laughs> oh. No, you know, and of course I know what was going on, but everybody else at the end of the hallway oh, like, everybody was like, uh-oh. uh-oh. Man, that's, that can't be good. You know, so. Did, we, did Mark know what was going on at this point? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, Mark yeah. was Every, in on it. Yeah, okay. So I told him, I said, Mark is going to do something this afternoon. I'm not sure what it is. And I I ended up taking a glass of water in there because I, as much as I'm good at practical jokes, I'm not good at being there while they're <laughs> happening because it's really easy to start laughing when you know this isn't even real. But yeah, he, he said, just sit here for a couple minutes. We'll let him sweat. And then he goes, all right, 
now go call Robbie. You know, so I would say, Robbie, you need to come on down here. And, you know, of course, I guess you could say, you know, I imagine the table was like, what happened? Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, <laughs> I mean, he got quiet. I mean, I'm like, uh oh. So, something's not right. And uh, I walk in and have a seat. And I'm like, oh, this is, because Mauger's really serious, rarely. You know, he's jovial all the time. He jokes around and tells jokes a lot. Have a seat. Oh, geez, this is not good. Something's wrong. He said, I don't know how to do this. He says, so I'm just going to give it to you. And slides this memo across. It said, from, you know, Captain Mark Sacra to Battalion Chief Paul Mauger, you know, test results. And said, on Firefighter 1, I got like a 54. And Firefighter 2, I got like a 52 or something like that. And I could just feel the blood go out of my face and head. And I'm like, Chief, I'm sorry. I don't know what happened. I, 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 I know I did, but I know I'm better than this. I said, I, I said, I'm, I'm sorry. This is, it's an embarrassment. I, I don't know what to do. And, and Mauger, in, in an Academy Award-winning performance, commences to do the supervisor thing, and you know, kind of chastises me, counsels me, and you know, pretty much says, by all rights, he said, you don't meet the professional qualifications of this organization. I should put you in an orange helmet because I can't send you into a burning building right now. My <laughs> stomach started doing flips, and I, I could, I could imagine what, what was going through your mind. Sipping, oh, you're man, probably I, there I, sipping I on water. The, I had the water pinned to my mouth because I knew I'd, <laughs> it's wonderful, I'd blowing bubbles in it, trying not to laugh. But and I uh, said, so Chief, just. I, I'll take leave. I'll take sick leave. They'll send me home. I said, just don't put don't don't put an orange helmet on, please. I said, I'll do whatever I got to do. And he goes, all right, here's what we're going to do. I'm not going to make you wear the helmet. He said, but uh, you're going to take, you're going to study, you're going to take the test. You tell me what you need to help study, you know, doing the good supervisor thing, support, you know, what do you need? You need extra time. You need more materials. What do you need? I'll get it for you. We'll make sure you're you're ready for the next time. Yes, sir. I'll I'll take care of that. All right, you, you can go ahead. Man, my stomach is doing flips. I go in the library, which is just down the hall from Mauger's office, grab the IFSTA manual, head to the, what is the women's bathroom there, because we didn't have any women in the station, which was always the, the real private bathroom that you could go in and have some quiet time. And I'm in there on the can and re flipping the IFSTA book open, going, man, what I got, wow, did I miss, how did I miss it by that? Here come, Mark comes in, hey man, hey man, what happened? What's wrong? What happened? <laughs> I said, oh, God, Mark, I failed the test. Margaret's going to put me in an orange helmet and not let me go. <laughs> back and forth, and then a few minutes later, he goes, oh, my God. He goes out, runs out the door. A few minutes later, he comes back with that memo, and Margaret has written gotcha in big red letters on that memo <laughs> and slides it under the stall, and I'm ready to kill everybody. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, like, like we talked about the Academy Award, I knew he was lying, and I was convinced you were in trouble. <laughs> well, I felt, yeah, yeah. I mean, the I was like, yeah, halfway through, I was like, man, it sounds like Robbie's really going to get in trouble here, you know, and I knew I knew it was a joke. I will say one thing Margaret did say before you saw the gotcha part. As soon as you left and shut the door, he looked at me, he goes, man, I really hope he does pass this thing, because I don't know if I don't do it if he doesn't. <laughs> he, 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 <laughs> he told me that, too, afterwards. He said, man, you better hope you pass that. I said, no, sir, you better hope I pass it. <laughs> he goes, yeah, you got a point there. <laughs> But uh, Margaret was one of them chiefs. You could, you, you, we all knew the line, and uh, you know, we 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 could joke and have a great time at work. But when business was business, and time to work, and it's time to work, and it was chief and lieutenant and firefighter, we were that's the way we were. And it, uh, you, know, you go back to that same shift, man. I'd, I'd go back right there in a, in a hot second and work right. with that crew and everybody that was on the truck at the time, and that mm -hmm. was good times. But talk about the boomerang. The the girly man mug bounced back to Hanover and got me. And uh, when I came, I left there and. Went to Hanover, came back three years later, and uh, my first day in the station, 
back. It was uh, Labor Day weekend. I, it was Monday. Monday, Labor Day. I was my first day back, and I, they wanted me to go back and ride an ambulance for a couple of days just to get signed off on some stuff. And showed up at 15, and Pete Svoboda was a lieutenant, and there was a box in there with my name on it sitting on a table and said, uh, hey, you got a gift, a uh, welcome back gift. And I went, oh, this ought to be good. <laughs> sure enough, it was a box. It was an orange helmet from Mauger. So welcome back, Pumpkinhead. So, <laughs> I never heard that yeah, either. Yeah. So that was my welcome back gift from, from Mauger that day. It was fun. Yeah. He's a good guy. He's a really good guy. Oh my God. I'm going to get him on here too. One of these days and get him to tell his side of that story. We'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens. They'll match up. Yeah. My wife has told me that, you know, she's listened to all the fire department war stories and she said they change a little over the years. Like what we remember having, she said, you used to tell that different, but I'm not, I'm not sure how <laughs> yeah. different these are. They, they seem accurate in my head at least. Yeah. The, uh, I, I wish I could get the rights to the music, but there's a Jimmy Buffett song that says there's a, I've made up a few things, and there's some I forgot, but the life and the legend are all real to me. That's right. <laughs> so that's it's a, a semi-true story. So, yeah. yeah, that's kind of the unofficial theme song that I can't play because I don't want to spend millions of dollars in licensing fees. Yes. So uh, yeah, let's get off of us and talk uh, a little bit about rookies. Uh, this is one that uh, Chief Keith Brower, he was in Loudoun County, and he was he was he and I were fire marshals about the same time, and I sat down and talked to him a while back, and he talked about how they welcome rookies to the station up in Loudoun. But I think uh, there's probably the classic of getting the newest person in the organization. Uh, you'd contact a neighboring station, and you'd be looking for a specific piece of equipment, um, such as a hose packer <laughs> or the um, compression oil. <clears throat> excuse me, compression oil. We had to have a, had to have a bottle of compression oil. We had to put that on the fire truck so it would you know properly operate. So there were those kinds of things where you would call the neighboring station and alert the folks that you were sending the newest person down to pick up the sky hook, the compression oil, or the Knuton valve, uh, or any of any of those uh, various and sundry things that that obviously don't exist. Uh, and then of course, when the when the person got to that station, uh, they would meet with that officer or, or senior firefighter, and of course that they had just loaned it out to the next station. Which was another five miles down the road. <laughs> so you had to go to the next house. <laughs> had to go to the next station, and um, so you know, by the end of the day, they they'd made the circuit of three or four stations, only to find out that they'd been had. Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. That reminded me of one. Uh, this when I was on a helicopter, um, and we were at fourteen at the time, and I think I think it was Chuck Jones. And if it's not, I, I apologize, but I, I think it was Chuck Jones, and I forget who was. Who was the officer who said, "Hey Chuck, uh, we, we're gonna go ahead and wash your helicopter for the pilots because they, you know, we've been flying all day or something it was dinner time, and so we're gonna wash the helicopter away and we wash, but they need that special soap, the prop wash. It's special soap in the over there in the aviation uh, cabinet. So it's prop wash. You gotta go find that soap. Okay. <laughs> he goes over and hunts through the cabinet, can't find any prop wash. Man, I can't find that prop wash. Where do you think it is? He goes, well, go ask Dave Nichols. Dave, Dave was a pilot that day." He said, go ask him for the prop wash, thinking, you know, Dave's going to, going to, boy, you don't know what prop wash is. <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> well, Dave, being a bit of a jokester himself, you know, Chuck goes up and says, hey, Dave, I'm, I'm, we're going to wash a helicopter for you, but we can't find any of the prop wash. Where, where's the prop wash? He said, son, that's a helicopter. We don't use prop wash. We use rotor wash. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. He goes back over and starts looking for, looking for rotor wash. <laughs> oh, it's funny. Well, you might know, you might know the story too. This doesn't involve either of us, but... 
the dead catfish Vaughn asked if he could take the helicopter out and fly it by himself. Yeah, Wayne Timberlake was, uh, yes, Wayne. He said, hey, uh, come, let's go for a ride. He goes, hey, man, the keys are in it. <laughs> okay, you remember, you know the rest of it? No, well, I was going to let you talk because this is secondhand to me. I, I yeah, think you're more I, up close with it. But. I wasn't there either, but it was it was a classic. And uh, Catfish goes out, and Milton Eaton had just pulled into the fire station, one of the other trooper pilots. And the helicopter was out on the ramp, out on the helipad out back, and Catfish grabs Milton. Milton lays down in the floorboard of the co-pilot side, and and a catfish is up in the pilot seat, puts Wayne Timberlake's hat helmet on with the visor down, <laughs> and Milton lights that helicopter up. You know, you, you hear it's a very distinctive whine that the engine spins up, and then you introduce fuel. And it's like, <laughs> well, we're in the we they were in the uh, day room at the station, and they said Wayne Timberlake heard that turbine start to spin up took about two steps and out the back door he went and all he could see is catfish and that big grin and his helmet on and grinning in the front seat of the helicopter and Milton Day laying down trying to start that thing. Oh uh, yeah, that was a, he never a, told anybody else the keys were in it, I don't think. Yeah, I was wondering. Luckily, catfish did get shot because didn't those guys carry a yeah, sidearm yeah, yeah, yeah. at the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Turn but, the helicopter off. <laughs> get away from that. Uh, oh. Oh my, you got any others? Um, I can think of, you want me to read that counseling form that uh for being late to work? Yeah, this is this is one you uh that <laughs> you wrote yourself up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's it, the the lead into the story was basically I'd put in for a bunch of training leave and at that time you filled your own training leave. And I made a mistake in my personal calendar versus the telestaff calendar and actually left off one of the days on telestaff that I thought I was off. So I didn't show up to work that morning on time. Uh, actually, I didn't show up at all. Fortunately, somebody took the time last minute, and it was approved for a last-minute leave. But at that time, I was working for Chief David Throckmorton. And when I came back that afternoon, you know, around 1 o'clock, I called him and said, Hey, man, I guess you heard what happened. He goes, Yeah, you know what to do. You need to just write up the form. When I get there, we'll sign it. So he basically left it up to me to write my own counseling form for being late. Nothing so, could go wrong here. Yeah, so, so this, is, this is what I wrote. This is what's on the form. And it's a personal counseling form for you guys uh, familiar with those, just basically letting you know something happened at the station. On March 21st, 2008, at 0800 hours, you were not at your assigned location, Fire Station 14. After investigation of the incident, it was determined that you thought you were on training leave, thought you were on training leave and that it had been granted for the day. This was an error in your part and not detected when you monitored telestaff. This is the first late offense that you've had in over 15 years. During that time frame, you have been to work as scheduled for over 1,650 days straight. By doing a few calculations, that equates to a 99.93% on-time rating. This is a full 27% better than the on-time rating of all major airlines combined. <laughs> According to most standards, 99.93% is exceptional. I will be forwarding my request for you to receive a spot bonus based on this high level of accomplishment. Keep up the good work. So, so, so when Throckmorton came in, he sat down and I had to sign my pot and I slid it over. Here you go, sir. You know, and so he, fortunately he read it and didn't, didn't, you know, didn't just sign it because if he had, that would have probably left me with a dilemma of whether to even tell him. That would have been even better to have a copy of one that was signed like that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah, that, he slid it over and he read it. And he kind of cracked a smile. He goes, you got another one, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I had the, uh, the other one that's not nearly humorous <laughs> about being late and not doing it anymore. Otherwise, you'll be in trouble for the next year. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's good you can prank yourself, sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I thought, you know, he didn't let me write any more of my own counseling. <laughs> <after that. laughs> I wonder why. 
I wonder why. Hey, there's uh, there's this one, uh, another one from Cricket. He talks about, and this was kind of a, a long one. But uh, it seems like those guys in Henrico, they can kind of let it go well outside the department. And this is one that uh, that did, in fact, go outside the department just a little bit on one of the guys. You know, uh, a firehouse joke's got to have a certain amount of cruelty in it for it to be funny. <laughs> uh, so um, <clears throat> a couple of those is uh, we, we had a guy on a shift that um, he um, bought a car. And this is back in the age where he wanted air shocks on the back to jack the back of the car up. And he uh, went out and bought himself a set of Gabriel hijackers. Put those Gabriel hijackers on his car and had all the airline. Did it at the firehouse, too, on Saturday. and Worked out there all day. We'd go out there and, you know, offer the head. Nah, man, I got it. And we sat there and talked to him. And he put them air shocks on that car and got them all blowed up. And He'd adjust it and adjust it and finally got just the right right look and the right bounce to that thing. So uh, got it all straight, washed his car, backed it up in the parking lot over there at Fire Station 1. And after bedtime that night, we got up and went out there and let all the air out the shocks. <laughs> Car's flat in the morning. He comes out there, dang on it all. So he'd blow them up, take it home. Man, I spent all day looking for that, leaking that shock yesterday. You know, soaked all the fittings <laughs> down there. He couldn't find it. Blow it back up. Parked in there. All jacked up. Sure enough, next morning when he got up, car's flat. <laughs> what? It only happens at work. <laughs> you know, maybe it's where you're parking it. You got it on a certain night. So he moved it around to every parking place. And then he took it back to Sears where he got his shock from. Got another set of shocks. Another set of airlines. Went through all that trouble. He went through three sets of shock for the lights come on. And hey, man. It's only it's happening only. at the it station. It actually got to where it won't <laughs> fun anymore, where we had to tell on ourselves, hey, man, right. we, we're tired of you suffering with these shocks. Man. <laughs> wrong with I'm going to guess this cat never made it into the investigations. Really. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, he didn't. Uh, but but he, was, uh, he was a good old soul when it come to taking the joke. Though. <laughs> oh, man. That's, those are those long, tenured ones that uh, go on forever. It's pretty funny. You know, it, that, you know, exactly what you guys said there, because I'd actually mentioned that to some newer guys, and it, I found it to be pretty true of myself. You know, if you're out in the bay doing work on a truck or whatever, the front doorbell rings or something, and whatever happens to you at that point doesn't make any sense, it might just be unlucky. But if it happens twice, yeah. you really, and once again, that's like I said earlier, you need to start looking around and seeing who's laughing, you know, because <laughs> more than likely, more than likely you're being set up. Uh Here's, here's another one that went on a, a while, and uh, rest his soul, George Decker, our, our uh, fellow Recruit School 14 member. I'll let Jerry Pruden tell that story. Yeah, one that sticks in my mind, poor old George Decker, God rest his soul. He, he was good for giving them. And uh, so he was on the receiving end of quite a few, and he used to pick on Shelly Porter crazy all the time. They were back and forth at each other. And one day, uh, Shelly took George's shampoo and dumped it out and filled the bottle with honey. <laughs> so he's, Shelly lets that go for several days, if not longer, and finally he starts talking to George. Says something to him in the shower. I said, man, that shampoo doesn't, um, doesn't sell up very good, lather up. <laughs> George said, you know, I recognize that. Wonder what you know? How come he didn't do it? And they told him he'd been washing his hair for weeks with honey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor George. Yeah, 
He was a good soul, though, no doubt. He was fun. He was a uh, he was a good old country boy, man. He I, he was fun to have in recruit school. Yeah, I still recall, you know, about every fourth or fifth trip while we were standing at attention at the line, somebody go, "Hey, George." You left the truck door open on your truck again. Yeah, again. <laughs> He'd get out and walk down to the line up and leave his for not shut his driver's door when he's done. But uh, yeah, he's that, and he sounded like you were killing a moose every time he would run the mile and a half because he's <laughs> George. George, I don't think did a lot of running on as for fun, you know. But he was in good shape otherwise. But yeah, he was. He was a lot of fun to go snow skiing with too. There were some some stories from the ski slopes that uh, I forget who I was with, maybe Burnett or somebody, and we were talking about George and. What he mentions what he was wearing, and the uh, uh, ski lift attendant goes, "Yeah, he's about five seats in front of you." He said, "I," she said, "I recognize that guy." Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, he stood out to them too. So, let me see if we can do uh, maybe one or two more here. Um, there's some that may have crossed a, a couple of lines. Um, those that get out of the uh, department or out of their intended. Impact, if you will. Um, oh, boy. Yeah, Bobby Ralston tells this story, and uh, thankfully no names are mentioned here, so I'll let him tell the story. There, there was an individual, I'm not going to peg names on it, but um, one of them got a hold of some uh, Virginia Department of Health letterhead <laughs> and uh, typed a letter and sent it to fire administration about another individual having a highly... Uh, Highly contagious uh, STD. You shouldn't have contact with the public. And, uh, <laughs> just feels a little bit dirtier than Richmond. So, uh, much to his surprise, the sender, the chief shows up on their shift day and tells this guy, "You got to go home now. You're, oh, you're no. the victim of the joke. You yes, got to go home. You're, you're out of here. You're off until we get some." clarification on when you can return it was a big crap storm and uh, then it came out this dummy's saying, no, no 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 that was really a practical joke and then so he got some time off and the other guy came back <laughs> oh, that's a, oops yeah it went backfired too on him oh well yeah collateral damage oh <laughs> uh, let me see what else we got here well i can think of one if you wanted some filler time yeah go just ahead one last thing that uh that I was involved with, and this involved Jamie Henley. Um, anybody that ever worked with me knew that I'm, I'm really cold nature, man. I hate to be cold, so I don't get hot very often. But you know, I, know, really I, know, I think I know this one. So my entire 33 years in the fire department, I had an electric blanket on my bed because I was always. It didn't matter what the bunk room temperature was; it was always a little chilly for me. So and most I, of the bunk rooms are somewhere in the 50. Yeah, range. yeah, and that, most people like it really cool, and I'm I'm not much of a fan of that, but that's okay. You know, I could take my little tiny bunk and make it whatever temperature I needed it to be. Well, when I was just got promoted to an officer, I worked down in Ettrick and I worked for, I worked with a guy who's one of the greatest guys around Vaughn Colbreth, you know, and he would give me crap about that all the time. Like, Oh no, you have to sleep in all that JP. It's not that cold in here. You know, he slept. This, <clears throat> these are stories we probably can't tell on there, but he slept completely naked. And if oh, yeah. you ever catch him coming down the hallway while you're going up the hallway, Seeing you had a couple flights of stairs to go up and down is usually not good. But anyway, uh, see the other story is is when the tones would go off, he would jump up, stand up in his bed, and reach the speaker and turn the speaker. Up yeah, 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 yeah. It's it. Yeah, fun was fun was fun. Fun was a lot He's of fun. A character. Yeah, it, he he absolutely wouldn't be allowed in a modern day bunk room. So that's for sure. Not like that, at least. But um, yeah. So we went back and forward about it being too cold in there, and you know he's making fun of me about it. And I thought, you know what? 
I'm going to fix up with him. And then Jamie Henley was involved in this too. I got to give Jamie credit. He was part of this group, kind of like Mark Barry and I, you know, on some of the pranks I got with you. Jamie was also assisting this. I thought, you know what? I'm going to take, once he makes his bed, I'm going to unmake it. I'm going to put my electric blanket on top of his mattress and put his fitted sheet over it and then lean back and wait for him to, you know, lay down, you know, give him a couple minutes. And of course I told everybody else about this. And if you guys have never tried to pull a practical joke on somebody at night, when you can hear two thirds of the bunker and snickering and you don't want to bust out laughing because you're like a foot away from them. It's tough, but yeah, sure enough, Yvonne laid down, you know, so I, I waited about 15 minutes and then I did my best ninja crawl from my bunk over to his bunk, you know, on my hands and knees trying to slide over there. So he wouldn't see me reach under the bed and turn the blanket all the way up and then slid all the way back and got back in my bed. And you could, you could hear people snickering in the background. You see Vaughn starting to roll around a little bit, roll around a little bit more. And then, and throws all the covers off and he lays there for another couple minutes. Now you can hear people actively snickering in the corners of the room and then it's like, God damn, longer I lay here, the hotter I get. You know, and then it's like then like two thirds of the bunk room bust out laughing and he at that point Paul knew somebody's right, laughing at yeah, me. Something you're... something's wrong. So, you know, he gets up and then he finds the cords of the thing and pulls the blanket out from underneath his stuff and yeah, from that point, I had to watch my back because I would periodically turn the breaker off to the plugs in the bunk room so the blanket would get cold in the middle of the night. I'd have to go down the hallway and flip the blanket back on. So Revenge could, there. Yeah, yeah, to get my friggin' heat back on because I was up in the, back then, Station 12, I was in the corner of the high-rise part in the corner with 1960 windows in there. So in the middle of the winter, it was like four, you know, 15 mile an hour wind blowing across that part of the bunk room anyway. But yeah, that was, that was actually kind of fun. Vaughn took that pretty well considering I tried to cook him in his sleep. <laughs> Let's do uh, one more here. And this one, uh, I am relatively certain that this happens on a routine basis today. And I know, uh, I don't think you were there because Roger Hicks was on the engine. We pulled this one on Roger Hicks for about 20 minutes one day. And uh, John Harkness tells it here about what they did in the city one time. I think one of the funniest, and you still see it to this day, is when you have a a new person in the fire station and um, they're doing dishes and you do the recycling. (laughs) And I think the best we ever did was about 45 or 50 minutes. And then they finally <laughs> caught on. Now, that was in a multi-company house, so there was a lot of dishes. But uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, we did that to Hicks one day at four. He was washing, and all we'd, you know, you'd hand it to the guy to your left, and they'd dry it and pass it around behind you and pass it to the guy on your right, and you'd cycle it right back. And Roger's, Roger's such a good guy. He's always talking and telling stories to everybody. He's not paying attention to what he's washing. He watched the same pot like five times before he realized <laughs> hey wait a minute i've seen this one before yeah yeah i think i came to 14 when he left it's either he or prudent left so yeah I, I did hear about that story he's yeah roger's a heck of a guy too yep and he'd be another one to get on here one of these days he's yes a, he's a hoot and a half he uh i think the i got an acting position because he f- i don't know if he fell out of the rig or just stepped in a hole at uh at the river's bend fire that night uh, maybe that was, I think it was a river's been fire. Yeah. He just stepped in a hole and dang near broke his ankle. And yeah. all we see is him going off underneath it, hanging on to two Bensley rescue girls going to the ambulance. I'm God, I think I broke my ankle. Yeah. I think Brooke Keenan gave me that visual image. He said, he looked up and he said, here's Roger Hicks going with two, one arm around two different Bensley girls. And one of them had his helmet on backwards. <laughs> <laughs> walking to the ambulance. Oh, yeah. good times. Yeah. All right, well, JP, we've been at it for over an hour, and uh, shoot, we could 
probably tell a few more. Any any of the other ones on your list that you want to make sure you get in? The- no, I think we we covered the highlights. Uh, the, the, those are some of the better ones uh, that that I can recall. There's some as, as we talked, uh, some other ones actually popped in my head. But so yeah, you if we sat down at a, a bar with four or five of us, we could probably talk for six or seven hours on uh, all the different pranks and things that happened in Firehouse. Well, uh, but this is this has been good. We're going on a canoe trip here in a couple of weeks, and I think Terry Newcomb's going to be there, and Ben Gary, and. Uh, bunch of other people and uh if i can work out the logistics i'm going to take at least a recorder and a couple of microphones with me and we'll see if i can get some stories out of those guys and the campfire stories ought to be good that'd be good ones yeah so uh so jp again thanks for coming out man it was a it was a blast working with you it was a blast in recruit school we'll talk we'll tell recruit school stories next time we get together and uh, maybe get a hold of kevin and have a have a reunion of, of sorts that sounds like a great plan. And if we can find Mike Woolley, Willie, if he's still out in Wyoming or wherever, we'll, we'll get him on the internet with us and uh, start telling stories. So. Yes, I think it's a, I think it's a good idea. All right, well, JP Jones, uh, thanks again for being here, and uh, for everybody who's listening, thank you for listening, and thanks for the ideas. This, the whole episode here, kind of came out of an idea from somebody that uh, kind of made the suggestion, and hopefully, hopefully enjoyed it. But uh, don't try those at home. Uh, don't get yourself in trouble. Anyway. If you got any other ideas, uh, suggestions, or feedback for me, make sure you drop me a note at uh, email at firehouselogbook at gmail.com. And uh, you can follow along on Twitter. The handle there is at FDLogbook, and the Instagram handle is at FDLogbookPodcast. Or make sure you follow along on uh, Facebook as well, because I've got a picture of JP from Station 14 that I don't know if I'm going to show it to him before I post it or not, but uh, <laughs> it's 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 a, it's a beauty. So nice. We'll make sure you tune in there, and uh, if if you haven't seen it, uh, check it out. So thanks again for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>